From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, the largest strike in the nation entered its fifth week. 36,000 grad student employees of the University of California, including teaching assistants who are not grading final exams. Nelson Lichtenstein has our update. But first, the Democrats triumphed in Arizona in November, electing the governor, the secretary of state, and a senator in what used to be a red state. Steve Phillips explains what happened in a minute. Arizona and Georgia have become the two key states Democrats must win in 2024. We've talked a lot here about Georgia and the Senate runoff race there. Now we need to focus on Arizona, where Democrats in November won the statewide contest for governor, senator, and secretary of state. For comment on how it happened and what lessons we can learn, we turn to Steve Phillips. He wrote the bestseller, Brown is the New Black, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. And his new book is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. He also hosts hosts the podcast, Democracy in Color, and he writes for The Nation and The Guardian. We reached him today in San Francisco. Steve Phillips, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Let's start with a little history. Once upon a time, Arizona was the birthplace of right-wing Republicanism. Barry Goldwater won that grassroots triumph over the Republican Party mainstream in 1964. When did the Democrats start thinking about mounting a serious effort in Arizona? Well, it's uh, what's that saying? If the the people lead, the leaders will follow. And so <laughs> it was not really the Democrats themselves who were leading that charge there. And it was really the activists, and particularly the activists of color and largely women activists of color. And so the arc of uh, Arizona's politics since 1990, with you had, you know, one or two statewide exceptions where you had, you know, a moderate um, Democrat able to win. And then even um, when Napolitano won the gubernatorial, it was a very low turnout, very narrow margin, and nothing about that would suggest there's a model that you can build upon in terms of move move things forward. So the larger and too much hidden story in Arizona is the demographic revolution of what's transpired there. From 1990 to 2010, Arizona went from being 22% people of color to almost half today, um, 47% of the population of people of color. And so as this state became increasingly uh, racially diverse, there was a strong backlash uh, that, you know, presaged a lot of what Trump was doing in terms of anti-immigrant legislation. And then there was a signature draconian bill, the SB 1070 in 2010, which was the show me your papers bill. And it was very, very right wing and, you know, traumatized lots of people of color, communities of color. And it made it through the legislature, and then there was a vigil on the lawn of the state legislature as first dozens and then hundreds and thousands of activists tried to make a moral witness to get the governor not to sign that bill. She did sign it, but what she didn't realize is that she had radicalized and politicized a whole generation of young people who went on to create the organizations and build the infrastructure that's registered hundreds of thousands of people to vote. And that is what has transformed the composition of the Arizona electorate. So going back to the 
presidential races. What did Obama do in 2012 in Arizona? What did Hillary do in 2016? Neither of them actually contested it very much. And so Jim Messina, Obama's campaign manager, flagged that there was potential there. And he was saying that Arizona is going to become, he said in 2012, Arizona is going to become more of a battleground state. The question is, is it going to happen this year in terms of being able to, to make that happen? And so they did not contest it. And so they lost by about seven percentage points um, in 2012. Hillary Clinton, and I still remember I was at a fundraising dinner with her and asked her, was she going to contest Arizona? Or was she going to contest Georgia's in 2016? This was, a, it was funny. It was a fundraising dinner in San Francisco. And actually, George Clooney was there. And this was during the primary. And all the Bernie people were heard about it. And they were all, you know, protesting. So Clooney goes out and tries to, you know, uh, talk, mollify them and talk to them. And then someone yells at him, Clooney. You sucked in Batman. <laughs> but, this, is, this is life in the San Francisco world. Yes, that is definitely San Francisco scene. And so Hillary, you know, she was gave a thoughtful pause to it, said they were going to think about it and look at it, but they didn't really invest very much. And they did ultimately do uh, three and a half million, mainly in television ads, mainly in the final weeks, and they made a visit. But that same year, there had been work by this coalition that had come out of the SB 1070 fight that had registered 80,000 Latinos to vote over the course um, of two months. And so if they had put money into that grouping, they could have expanded the vote. And even with those things that are inadequate, Hillary still came closer. She was three and a half percentage points behind um, Trump, and it was one of the closer of the states that she actually lost. And then then in 2018, Kirsten Sinema won. And however much of a problem she's become since then, that election, the election of a Democratic senator in Arizona, I think it was the first since 1989, was really a triumph for the kind of grassroots organizing you're talking about. And then, of course, in 2020, Joe Biden beat Donald Trump in Arizona and Mark Kelly won a special election uh, for the Senate seat. Um, you've talked about how population change was the key underlying factor here. But of course, you've shown many times population change doesn't necessarily mean a change in the composition of the electorate. That takes work. That takes registering people and turning them out. That takes organizations and leaders. And uh, who's been doing this work in Arizona? So it's that also we should we need to note that in 2018, yes, that cinema, she's grabbed a lot of the headlines. She won in 2018 through her commitment to in partnership with a lot of the grassroots and progressive groups. Yeah. But also uh, Katie Hobbs won the yeah. uh, the secretary of state race in 2018 and now is governor elect um, Katie Hobbs. So the people who were doing it are the people who were on the lawn of the um, of, of the Capitol back in 2010. And so there's a great piece that was in the New York Times by Alejandro Gomez um, of uh, Lucha uh, it's one of the main Latino organizations that came up came out of that movement, talking about how that grouping came to be and how they were on the. There was like seven people originally at the at that vigil in 2010, and then it grew to a few dozen, then it grew to a few hundred, and that there were people there. So Alejandra went on to with um, her uh, uh, partner, uh, her organizational partner Tomas Robles, to create. Lucha was one of the anchors, civic engagement organizations. Another woman who was there who became friends with um, Alejandra, became a leading organizer, is uh, Monse Arredondo. 
She's the director of the One Arizona Coalition. And so there are now almost three dozen community-based organizations working in each of the different communities of color that have been working steadily and methodically over the past decade to increase the voter turnout. So they realized through that 2010 protest that they, and part of what they started to do while they were first just protested, then they started registering people to vote. And they started going on the community and registering people to vote. Then they created organizations. So over the course of the past decade, they've registered close to half a million Latino and people of color, Latinos and people of color within Arizona. And that's what has changed the composition and the calculus and made all of these victories possible. So we've been talking about people of color. What about white voters? What did they do in 2022? There is a sector, a larger sector of Arizona white voters who are in fact more moderate than in other places, such as Georgia, where you put forward the least qualified, most scandal-ridden candidate for Senate, perhaps ever, as a, yeah. as a nominee. And that person still gets 48, 49% of the vote in Georgia. And so there, and 88% of the, of the uh, white, white Christian evangelical vote in Georgia running against the Christian minister. <laughs> and so that electorate is so very fundamentally um, divided and clear that the qualifications matter not at all. In Arizona, in the other aspect of Arizona, so John McCain had kind of blazed this trail as a maverick, and he had at least shown a different, at times, type of leadership. He was leader on the campaign finance reform when he ran against Obama, and the person was doing this racist attack on Obama at this town hall. He specifically shut that down. So he showed some measure and some core of decency, and he had a large constituency. He's a leader in Arizona for a long time. So then both Trump and uh, Kerry Lake, who was running for governor, the Trump-ite uh, running for governor this, in 2022, were attacking McCain. And so trying to think that they were miscalculating that they could that this red meat, whip up your base type of approach um, would be mathematically sufficient and would not alienate. And so that, along with the election denialism, and then even I would, there was actually, as I'm remembering now, some of the at least some of the Republican state legislators in Arizona were not going along with the with the the coup attempt, even in 2020 when Trump was trying to put pressure on them. And so there is some, if not huge, it's like a carried away, but there is some larger percentage um, of the Arizona white voters who I think are what we would see as more traditional moderate people who actually believe in things like democracy and have some kind of intellectual honesty and coherence. So I do think some measure of them defected or voted both for Biden and then for for Katie Hobbs. They both, and for Mark Kelly, they both, all of them got high 40s in terms of the, you know, 48, 49% of the white vote, which is larger than typically gets nationally. I mean, Democrats are lucky to get 42, 43% nationally. So there is something there. There are considerable number of white moderates in Arizona who have supported Democratic candidates. Do you think progressives can count on them in the future to support uh, Democratic politics? No. Well, I don't think it's not a smart any. And if you think about it in terms of a business proposition, I mean, how business goes about, you want to build your business around your most loyal customers, not your least loyal ones. Mm-hmm. And so the, the 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 concept that somehow you can have these factors line up. I mean, there's never been 
since the actual Civil War, a president, well, certainly hasn't been a president since the Civil War, and certainly not a presidential candidate, so contemptuous of democracy and everything that people had thought that they actually believed in what this country actually stood for and who actually waged an actual coup and was quite unapologetic about it. Those conditions are very, very unique, and we can't depend upon those conditions being repeated. And people lost the history is that Trump was an accidental president. He never really even wanted to be president. He just wanted to be more famous. But there are others, Ron DeSantis and others, who will not be as uh, uh, visibly extreme. And that may actually then attract back some of the moderate Republicans. And so for us to rest our uh, fates and futures on them um, would be very unwise and unnecessary in terms of where the trends are going demographically. So we have to talk a little bit about Kirsten Sinema. She's up for re-election in 2024. Of course, she's quit the Democratic Party and declared herself an independent. Progressives for a long time in Arizona, ever since the beginning of, of her disaffection, have talked about challenging her in, a, in the next primary. Representative Ruben Gallego from Phoenix has been preparing to challenge her in the Democratic primary for a while now. He says he will decide after the holidays whether to run in the Democratic primary. He's a member, I should say, of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and he's vice chair of the LGBT Equality Caucus in the House. If Cinema runs as an independent, then the Democrats have to decide whether to support her anyway which they do in in Maine with Angus King, where they don't run a serious challenge to him, and which they do with Bernie Sanders, or whether to run a real progressive Democrat in Arizona, which could easily split the cinema vote and elect a Republican. I wonder if you have any wisdom to offer on the Kirsten Cinema dilemma. Well, I don't think we should allow ourselves to be held hostage by cinema, first of all. And then the level of um, betrayal of what she has uh, demonstrated from her position for her own personal gain really cannot, should not be rewarded in a larger sense. And a lot of times people keep saying, oh, we have to like moderate all our politics and move to the middle. And I'm like, well, a certain point to what end? If you get an office, but you can't actually make any kind of changes, what's the point of all of that? And so I, I don't think that we should let ourselves be held hostage by cinema. I think it would be good if uh, Gallego could get out early and so, because Sima has not declared that she's running again. So she's playing a game of political chicken, if not um, Russian roulette to a certain extent. <laughs> and so who's all going to, you know, get killed first, right? And so it would be to her detriment as well, but she could try to take down Democrats with them, which obviously would not put put past her. But I think the best thing would be for Gayo to get in early consolidate as much of the progressive movement behind him, get as much momentum behind his candidacy. And then it's her who then is splitting the vote. And then she will, the stronger Gallego is, the clearer it will be to her that she can't win. And so then she'll have to make a calculus is that, is she going to simply try to torpedo and destroy the Democrats? Or as somebody was referencing today on, you know, the media or Twitter or whatnot, that she's going to get well paid by the people she's sold out to. So why doesn't she just take her check and walk away? And so the stronger that the progressive and democratic candidacy is, the more likely it'll be that she will in fact just walk away. Steve Phillips, his new book is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. Steve, thanks for all your work and thanks for talking with us today.
Thanks for having me on. The biggest strike in the country entered its fifth week. We're talking about the University of California grad student employees, 36,000 teaching assistants and research assistants. For comment and analysis, we turn once again to Nelson Lichtenstein. He teaches history at UC Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author of 16 books, including The Definitive History of the United Auto Workers, titled Walter Ruther, The Most Dangerous Man in Detroit. He also writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, Descent, and The Guardian. We reached him today in Santa Barbara. Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, the latest news, the postdocs and the academic researchers voted last week to accept the universities offer to their local, which is separate from the teaching assistants. They accepted a $12,000 raise in the coming year. There are 12,000 of them. There are 36,000 still on strike. The new contract won overwhelming support. 90% of the postdocs, 80% of the academic researchers voted for it. They're going to go back to work on Monday. What's in this deal? The, the postdocs got a better deal a 20 or 23 percent increase right away now what that means really is just to put that in context it means the last time they had a they 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 finished their contract which was in september of of 2021 they'll get this big increase as of i think it's as of september of 23 so over two years they're getting you know 20 percent well that's good that's good it's better than inflation and then and then after that much smaller increases and it lasts for five years the problem with five years in this inflationary environment is we don't know what's going to happen. There was a letter on my campus at University of California, Santa Barbara, from, from a, over 100 very distinguished uh, scientists complaining to the university, wait a minute, you've just given them a wage increase, but we're paying for it. And that means what that means is that out of their grants, they can have fewer, you know, uh, postdocs or, you know, et cetera. I think that was one reason they could they were, were generous with the postdocs, because essentially the federal government was paying for most of it then the academic researchers these are a group we don't we don't know much about they they they're permanent employees of the university or relatively permanent who are you know in again mainly in the labs or other places of that sort uh and there they their wage increase was 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 parallel to what the faculty would get that is you know, I, I think it's four and a half or percent again over every year, over five years. It'll amount to a you know a hopefully keeping up with inflation, but it's not a um, it's not a, it's not a transformative contract, and that that was sort of what the the strike was about. We don't want just an ordinary wage agrees. We want something that will transform the meaning of work. But one of the things that the academic researchers got, and I suspect this was something they really wanted, they can be principal investigators. That means they can write grants, they can get grants from their point of view. Many of them are, are PhDs. They also are, 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 are minimum hiring for two years rather than one. And I think that's very important too. So, I mean, it's not a, it's not nothing to, to shout to the heavens about, but they got a considered a, a good contract. It will, it will probably keep up with inflation, maybe a little bit more. And I think for the postdocs, it's actually even better. 
And then there are 36,000 workers who are still on strike. Mostly right. these are the teaching assistants and they're big, there's big news about them too. It's a crucial moment for the university. It's final exams week. Finals are not being graded. Something like 37,000 grades are not gonna be turned in next week. The UC administration made what it said was its final offer last week. The union did not accept it, but then the UAW agreed to mediation. And the mediator is going to be the mayor of Sacramento, Daryl Steinberg. What exactly does this mean? And, and how did it go over with the rank and file? The UAW uh, negotiators who had been resisting mediation for a while, for quite a while, the UC had wanted it, they, they sort of accepted it. It's kind of a hiatus right now. Uh, the, you know, uh, I think they're fine. That this is finals week, and and there, uh, there are no picket lines, and and then, well, the strike will resume in 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 January. But let me say two things. Daryl Steinberg, he was actually suggested by the governor, according to the news reports. Steinberg was the uh, head, I believe, of the uh, uh, the the California Senate uh, before he became the uh, mayor of Sacramento. He has just he just finished mediating a long. And pretty bitter strike uh, by the National Union of Healthcare Workers against Kaiser, which had gone on for many weeks in the fall. And he came in and they did resolve that. And the union seemed satisfied. Now, to the degree that uh, Steinberg is there, it, okay, this is a state issue now. This is you know, not just a, 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 in, in the UC's sandbox. And, and, and I think the issue then of okay, is there going to be more money for the university from the legislature? That is at least put a little bit more on the agenda. And I think it has to go on the agenda. So probably a good thing that Steinberg is the, is the mediator. He's not some routine kind of uh, figure, uh, but, but he's a major figure. How does mediation work? Is it mandatory? Uh, it's not. That's right. It is not. The strike can go on during mediation. It's not arbitration. Uh, he he, they, he can't just sort of have a dictate. That's correct. It it, it in theory it, it it might not mean anything. And UC has been playing a pretty hard line. And the graduate students, the teaching assistants, tutors, and readers, there's a unquestionably a very militant element among them who want to continue the strike, and that means withholding grades, and and that that could, that could continue happening well into the next next quarter. Uh, I mean, I think it's no secret that the, there's kind of a division among the uh, uh, these graduate students between, uh, well, for lack of a better word, a, a somewhat more militant faction and those who are, you know, looking looking for a good deal, looking for a good contract, but not, not really sort of willing to go to the, you know, <laughs> to go all the way, you know, for it. Meanwhile, this week, the UC administration has been talking about, I don't know if it's happened yet, sending yeah. out these attestation notices that require all teaching assistants and faculty to state whether they are on strike or supporting the strike. And this presumably would lead to their pay being docked. On the one hand, it's definitely an intimidation tactic. On the other hand, they waited until week five to do this. Uh, and I really wonder whether the university has the, the capability, the staffing, to change the employment status of more than 10,000 people. I mean, they have a hard time just getting the paperwork right when you go on leave or something like that. So it seems unlikely they're going to be able to follow through with this, but it's definitely they're escalating their tactics here. 
Yes, I think you're right, John. And I think they, they, it was clearly a, a gambit at intimidation. I, I don't think this one particularly will work. I think basically people will just not not respond in one way in one way or another. And I believe it may even be illegal um, violation of the of the California labor law uh, to to to, to do, uh, do that until after the strike is over. In, in any event, I, I don't think that's going to go very far. But what I think the the UC did was the UC UC said, okay, we've got our budget. Here, human resources. You guys uh, negotiate this, but you know you, you you're locked into this the framework, and that's part of the reason for the hard the hard line that that UC negotiators are 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 in. They 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 feel the constraint, but in fact, there's you know you have to get out of that box and get more money again from the legislature with the backing of the governor, and and we do have a more favorable political situation in California anyway, where that would be possible, and and the and in fact the strikers and the the union is now you know making. Uh, they're having demonstrations in Sacramento, and they're making this clear that this is not just a, a UC, uh, internal UC event. Last week, uh, you and I talked about the need to escalate the tactics beyond picket lines on campuses. There have been some pretty impressive demonstrations. There's a big one coming up on Wednesday. You and I are speaking on yeah. Tuesday when the regents will meet on the UCLA campus, and I'm sure that thousands of protesters yeah. will show up outside that one. Uh, the union has had picket lines outside the offices of some of the regents here in L.A. The LAPD arrested 10 people on December 7th on dress trespassing charges. They were rallying inside the headquarters of the David Geffen Company, one of our billionaire liberals in California. The CEO of the David Geffen Company is uh, UC Regent Richard Sherman, and they called the cops uh, and had people arrested. There were more than 100 strikers demonstrating outside a dinner party at the home of UC President Michael Drake on December 7th, singing songs and pounding on drums. And at my campus, UC Irvine, a flotilla of strikers in kayaks paddled out in Newport Bay to the private island of megadonor Donald Bryn. And they shouted, Donald Bryn, the University of California took your millions and bought mansions for the higher ups while teaching assistants slept in their cars, close quote. So the direct action faction is shown some life in the last week. Yeah, yeah, Tim, I want to make this point. I think it's it's not just a question of militancy, or, you know, getting arrested, that kind of thing. That's that's sometimes, yeah, that's fine. I mean, you, you, we, good, civil disobedience is, has its place and, and for sure. But when I when I, I think about upping the upping the uh, the ante, it's it's a question of bringing in other players into this fight, into this contest who should be there. The regents, you know, for one, I mean, they, they you know, in theory, and, and there are, you know, some regents who are who are liberals or you know they don't want the, they don't want the uc to be to be a, a kind of a poster child for disruption and then of course the legislature and the governor and you know that 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 kind of thing and i think they're they're part they're players in this in this fight as well and that's why this is an important strike it's not just something that can be resolved within the the, the context of the of traditional uc labor relations it, it's it's beyond that i think robert reich economist who's on the faculty at berkeley wrote just today quote the UC strike is not just an effort to raise thousands of academic workers out of near poverty. It's a movement whose success requires a reversal of the austerity that has subverted public education across America, close quote. And if we look at the history of all this, really it goes back to 
Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor in 2005 who persuaded the university at that point to agree to this new idea that higher education should become a private good that students would purchase because they would gain earning power from it instead of viewing it as a public good provided by the people of California to all of its citizens. And that is the issue that the strikers have have put before the people here. Right, and it's, it's true, it's, you see in other places as well. I mean, here's the, the in, in the 1960s, after Clark Kerr put forward the, the master plan for you know, having the multi-campus University of California, which is, which is a, great, a great institution, uh, 50% of the funding for the university came from the state legislature, you know, out of the general tax revenues. Today, it's somewhere just above 10%. I mean, you know, so we've had that incredible decline. What that means, of course, is that, the UC has to well raise tuition. That's one thing that that happened actually under under Reagan, but also that it, it distorts what the university is to doing. You you end up scrambling for grants and stuff from various private philanthropies and and uh, trying to make the medical centers work, you know, and make money, etc. So it it you know we need to return to to a situation where the public universities are in fact funded by the public, and of course also the, they're they're bigger they're central to the economy and therefore the people who work in them they should be not just contingent kind of workers not not glorified uber drivers but you know regular employees who can have a life nelson lichtenstein university of california labor historian and activist nelson thanks for talking with us today you're welcome Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>